Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by NatureBox, the subscription service dedicated to smarter snacking. Each month, discover new, nutritious, tasty treats like banana bread granola and honey crunch crisps delivered right to your door. For 50% off your first order, visit naturebox.com slash gabfest. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for the week of March 6th, 2014, the Do I Look Stoned edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate, and the Gab Fest is live tonight in front of a rowdy but brilliant and handsome crowd at 6th and I Historic Synagogue in Washington, D.C. With me on stage, uh, resplendent, handsome and wise, is Slate's chief political correspondent and the political director of CBS News, John Dickerson. Hello, Hello John. And then here to perform the Oscar-nominated, gorgeously empowering song, Let It Go, from the movie Frozen, please welcome the wickedly talented, one and only, Alima Zabazowans. Hello, hello. We should have done the whole show in our Travolta name. That really is my deepest wish, to get up and just start belting a song really off-key in front of a huge audience. She was on, so she well. was on key. She was on key. She was on key, I know. This week on the Political Gap Fest, the crisis in the Ukraine worsens as Russia casually takes over Crimea and rumbles at eastern Ukraine. Is Putin off his rocker? Is war possible? And then, as I look out from the stage into a fog, a fog of smoke, hear nothing but the crinkle of cellophane as people unwrap their cannabis treats. <laughs> Decriminalization of pot has come to Washington, D.C., and marijuana legalization is moving faster than anyone ever expected. Is this a cause for celebration or just for eating? <laughs> then the SAT gets the biggest makeover in a generation, and the top score is again 1,600. Can any test ever measure college potential? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, of course, and an audience Q&A, and maybe even a song. The crisis in Ukraine is getting stranger by the day. As we tape, Russian troops occupy the Crimea, though they are pretending not to. And the local Crimean government has called for a vote about whether the region should stay part of Ukraine or become part of Russia. Vladimir Putin is also menacing eastern Ukraine, while Europe and the United States are pondering various sticks to punish Russia, including travel bans and possible sanctions. We have a special guest to talk about the crisis, New Republic senior editor Julia Yaffe, who is just back from Russia and the Ukraine. And she's been writing tremendous stories for the New Republic about what Putin's been up to, including a cover story that's out this week about eastern Ukraine. Julia, welcome to the GabFest. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
So Hillary Clinton uh, had said this notorious thing this week where she, she compared what Vladimir Putin is doing very explicitly to Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. Is that a decent comparison? I think it would be a decent comparison if Hitler then hadn't gone on to do the things he did in the 1940s. But what he's doing now is very comparable to Hitler in the 30s, you know, ostensibly protecting fellow speakers of the language, fellow members of the same ethnos. Um, I don't know if it's going to end in mass mechanized genocide, but it's apt in a very narrow way. But acts of aggression to take territory, that's the parallel that you see? Yeah, but aggression that's not met with any response, so it ends up being not really kind of aggression, just kind of waltzing in and taking. So you just come back from eastern Ukraine, uh, although before, I guess, the, the most recent round of yeah. explosions. Um, do you foresee Putin moving in there? I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've learned a long time ago not to try to predict what Putin's going to do. He's, he's really good at surprising us. I didn't, I didn't think he was going to go into Crimea. Things were so calm when I was there. I went to Danetsk, which is uh, Yanukovych's hometown. It's where his Party of the Regions was founded. And I spoke... And is it yep. in eastern Ukraine? It's in southeastern Ukraine. It's uh, very heavily Russian-speaking. If you look at most maps, it's very, you know, very dense, whatever color language they've given to the uh, color, whatever the it would Russian be language is. blue or yeah, yeah. orange. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, so I spoke to, uh, to a high-ranking kind of political at, uh, uh, officer in the city administration. He said, you know, we're not happy with this. It was a coup, but, um, you know, we don't want the West, the Ukrainian-speaking West, ruling us, but what are we going to do? We're not going to hold on to, if, you know, if people come in here and try to move us out of here, we're not going to hold on. We're going to go peacefully. And then literally, like, three days later, this happens. So, you know, I've learned a long time ago to stop predicting what Putin's going to do. So does that suggest that Putin's move had very little to do with what people in the Crimea or southeast Ukraine wanted and much more to do with Putin's own conception of power in the region? So I... It's important to note that this has nothing to do with Russian language speakers or ethnic Russians in Crimea or in southeastern Ukraine. And this might actually be a good sign because uh, he probably... like. I, I what, what do you mean? Let's go, so, go into that. That's so, sort of what your cover story is about. So. No, it's actually... A, I did a post on this a couple of days ago, but um, in April of 2008 at the NATO-Russia summit in Bucharest, uh, Romania... Putin made clear that if, because there was some talk that maybe Ukraine was going to join NATO or they might join the EU, when all of this talk kind of got started, and he said that if you guys take Europe, I'm going to, uh, if you take Ukraine, I'm going to take Crimea, and this said, this had nothing to do with, you know, it was he was just looking for an excuse to take Crimea. It's where his fleet was. It's obviously more secure if you own that land than if you're leasing it from a government that's constantly changing hands. That's why some people go back to when Clinton tried to expand NATO and say this goes way back. That it has. Did you agree with that? Is that where this? I mean, from from the Russian point of view, yeah. yeah there, um, even in 2010, they uh, issued the you know Ru- the Russian Defense Department or Defense Ministry issued a report saying that what they see their biggest the biggest threat to their security and sovereignty as NATO in 2010. But to be fair, why does NATO still exist? Right? It was founded to counter the Soviet threat. The Soviet Union hasn't existed for over two decades. It used to, its borders used to stop very far away from the Russian border, and it's creeping ever closer. You know, and I, I understand where Putin's coming from on that one. So Putin, in 2008, he took back, he invaded Georgia, and more or less took back 
and got away with it. And got away with it. Is there any reason to think that that is not what's going to happen here? He's going to take Crimea, and in in a few months we'll be like, oh, yeah, Crimea, that's okay. That's sort of the Russian part of Ukraine. Yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, I I don't see the the alternatives. I mean, who's going to... And the same thing happened in Georgia, right? That was a hot war, a hot conflict, and we had a a much more... You know, people have been... um, slamming Barack Obama for this, for being weak and indecisive and not standing up to Putin. But we had George W. Bush in office then. I mean, that was not a man who shied away from starting wars. And, you know, and he, he couldn't stop Putin either because nobody wants to, you know, Iraq didn't actually have nuclear weapons. Afghanistan didn't have nuclear weapons. And, it, you know, armies haven't been, I don't know, you, you don't go to war with Russia. The calculus is different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess the three options, one is... He continues into the rest of Ukraine. Um, the other is he sits tight in what we were describing. And I guess the third is the Angela Merkel kind of find him an off-ramp. What is that, given your, what you've written about how unpredictable he is, but also I loved what you wrote about if you're going to try to predict him, just take the most cynical approach, and that's where he will go. So given that, is an off-ramp even... What would an off-ramp look like? Is, is that silly talk? What's An off-ramp is, I think wishful thinking on the on the west part it's what we would like to think to increase our own feeling of agency and potency i don't think that there's really anything we could have done to prevent it to prevent this uh and an off-ramp would look like him keeping crimea or annexing crimea or having it exist in this legally gray zone where it's not annexed but it's not no longer really part of ukraine and it's autonomous but within russia's orbit a destabilized southern and eastern Ukraine that then destabilizes the government in Kiev and keeps it, uh, keeps it as a kind of vas- vassal state to Russia where it's not strong enough or e- economically sound enough to join the European Union. So wait, that's the off-ramp? That's that what I'm saying. That's not a, that's it's not just a, calling it... No, that, that's right. just... I think that's probably the most... I mean, I, I will probably eat my words in a week, but um, that's probably the most likely outcome. And then we'll call it an off-ramp to make it sound like... To, to pat ourselves on the back and say that we did everything we could. It could have been worse. But really what's going to happen is we're just going to punish him for what he did, which is fair enough, because the amazing duality of Putin's Russia is that, on one hand, uh, Russia rants and raves about how it's a European country, and it's not Asia, and please don't call us Asia, and we're Europe, and you'd be, you, Europe, would be nothing without Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Uh, and they saw it. No, this is true. I mean, there was an, an investors conference that I went to uh, a couple of years ago in Moscow, and Putin was there, and he spoke. Somebody asked him a question. I don't remember about what. He went. He just flipped out and started talking about for five minutes about how European Russia was, and you know, like the kind of things French people say. Like they no, they, because you're France, you're Europe. You don't have to talk. Insist on being European. So um, there's that. What was? <laughs> I don't know. That was a good riff, though. (laughs) We didn't get to the pot section yet? No. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so, so, okay, what what I wanted to say was that um, Russia then signs on to these treaties, and it wants to be part of organizations like the G8 and the G20, and wants to sit at the table with the big boys and be seen as one of the European big boys or the Western big boys. Then, as soon as uh, people say, oh, hey, by the way, these are the big boy standards that you have to apply by, they say, whoa, hey, come on, we're a very unique country. 
with a very unique history and a deep Russian soul that you can't possibly understand with your stupid American mind. And it means that we need more territory and to have this sphere of influence around Russia. Or, that... we, or we need this or we need that or we need to repress the opposition or shut down independent media. And this is just how we do things and you can't possibly understand, but yet we're Europe. And so I think the punishment is actually the, you know... Um, instituting visa bans and asset freezes and bans on real estate is actually very apt because the uh, Russian elite, they don't, their families don't live in Russia. So all this talk about a great Russia, blah, 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 they don't believe it themselves because their families don't live there and they don't hold, they don't keep their money there and they own most of their land outside of it. So it's actually punishing the right people in Exactly, Russia. yeah. So yeah. what do you think, the, specifically, what do you think the punishments are going to be? I mean, there have been these, I guess, visa bans so far. What, what else do you think is going to come? So far, uh, the European, uh, the English travel ban, I think, was on Ukrainians. We don't know who the Americans have punished. I think these are going to be very surgical. The, the Europeans are very much shying away from mass economic san- sanctions because they're dependent on Russia. Uh, for energy, uh, and they trade the natural gas part of the. That's but right. Russia is dependent on them for consumer goods. That's right. So they don't care though. But the it's Russians two ways. Don't care. What do you mean the, Ru- the Russians don't care? You mean they don't care if they don't have toilet paper? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because they, because they have something amount. they care about more. Yeah, and what they care about more is, uh, what Putin cares about more is his place in history, uh, this myth of grandeur, restoring Russia to its greatness getting Russia up off its knees, whatever. There's a certain amount of economic pain that he's willing to tolerate. But if you go after his elite, the people who he needs to make the country run, uh, that might change the equation. But I don't think we're going to see that. I think we're going to wuss out. Going back to the question whether this was predictable, um, you wrote about Mitt Romney's, what he said about Russia, and you said he was right. That was my colleague. Oh, it was? I, yeah, oh, Isaac Chotner. No, no, no. Oh, he's great. He's great. Somebody attributed You'll it take to you. Credit. I'm so <laughs> So, well, then, uh, the, the, uh, let me unwind that then. So, could this have been foreseen, or if the specific set of events couldn't have been foreseen, was there a way in which U.S. policymakers have this kind of rosy view about Putin that they just misunderstand him, that they misunderstand this desire to be the person you just described? Um, that, that as we think about Putin going forward, that people need to have a kind of wise up about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually, we, at TNR, we identified Crimea as a kind of potential pressure point that he could lean on, as well as the east and the south of Ukraine. But generally what Western analysts miss about Russia is they try to impose a kind of Western rationale on them that, oh, sure, Putin wouldn't do this because it would hurt him economically, or uh, he cares a lot about his reputation uh, and so he wouldn't do this. He wouldn't do something that would hit at his reputation so hard. It's just not true. Uh, Putin is driven by other... He's driven by things other than money, even though he's a tremendously wealthy man, and we don't know how... We don't even know so how much money he has, you, but you, he, care, he cares about bigger things. I mean, you, you wrote about his press conference on Tuesday, and, and you suggested he that he seemed... What is his form of nuttiness? Is it a form of nuttiness we can analogize to some other person, either historical or current? And describe it, I guess. Yeah, is it like Muammar Gaddafi, where he's really off his rocker? Was he having one moment of performance art? <laughs> he's yes, trying to be more European yeah, he's all like, the time. He's, he's like big into sports, and yeah. performance art will be next. There There's go. judo yes. hey, the and performance art. just over. Now is the going. time we dance. He came to embrace Pussy Riot and their tactics. Um, what, what happened was he was just, he was just rambling, and... Uh, 
couldn't quite get his story straight, which is also, you know, exhibit 70 million in why this is not at all about the coup in Kiev or the alleged coup in Kiev or Russian speakers in Crimea. He was saying, he was bouncing from thought to thought, like, um, Viktor Yanukovych is still the legitimate president of Ukraine. However, I can't talk to anyone in Ukraine because they have no, there's nobody at my level that I can talk to. Well, hello, you just said that there was a president. Uh, they need to have elections to elect a president. Don't they have a president? Uh, but we can't have elections because there's terrorists all over Ukraine. Um, and we, we wouldn't recognize, you know, and things like just like folding, no, and just f- uh, the logic folding in on itself. And then getting this kind of crazy Cold War, almost like North Korean rhetoric about how Americans are like, are sitting in their laboratories in America and experimenting on Ukrainians like they're rats. Um, yes, that was, I was shocked by that. It's my own naivete, but I was so struck by that line because it just seemed so incredibly paranoid. This is, um, this is the problem with Putin. He's always been a little bit paranoid. He's always been given to conspir- conspiracy thinking, but it's gotten a lot worse over the years, especially since he came back to office in his, uh, for his third term as president. And uh, anti-Americanism and this Cold War rhetoric have been a cornerstone of that. They have been used to legitimize his return to power, that he needs to come back and rule Russia with a strong hand because, once again, Russia is beset by enemies. And the most terrifying thing to me about this whole crisis is what's happening on the Russian home front, the, the way that whatever was left of the independent media in Russia has been obliterated and rolled into the ground. What you're seeing on state television is utterly horrifying. I mean, the kind of jingoistic, foaming at the mouth, anti-Western stuff. It's just, it's really, I mean, uh, when Abby Martin, the Russia Today anchor, uh, condemned Russia's invasion of Crimea on the air, uh, Margarita Simonyan, the editor-in-chief of Russia Today, issued a statement that was, I mean, it just, it reminded me of reading, you know, Pravda from the 1930s. It was talking about how this is how strong the American propaganda machine is, that it corrupts the minds of even the most ardent youth. And because it's so strong, I'm quoting, uh, and because it's so strong, we will have to work even harder to defeat the Western propaganda machine. Hmm. <laughs> like, what are you, where, where is this coming from? This if is 2014. If only we yeah. were that effective. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is the paradox, right? That on one hand, we're incredibly wily and strong, and we can corrupt the minds of the most ardent youth with the flame of revolution burning strong in their hearts. At the same time, we're very weak <laughs> and corrupt, and we are easily defeated because we're so Which stupid. Which is always the fascist duality about the enemy, right? <clears throat> that it has to be all things. What do you make of the administration? Well, they say two things. They say, one, Putin is lashing out because he thought he'd kind of fix the Ukraine with his $15 billion buy-off. And so when that didn't stick, the pesky people going out into the square, he's lashing out because he has to kind of save face. So that kind of leads to the second part, which is that he's doing this all out of weakness. Now, are they tweaking him when they say that? They're like, oh, you're doing this out of weakness. You're a little, you know, is that a public get go at his ego or maybe where do you think i mean that comes i know from? that they're or is really, it wishful thinking it's probably a little bit of both i know they're um really fed up with him um i heard a lot of expletives coming out of the white house when edward snowden landed in moscow um but i don't this isn't weakness he's exploiting 
our inability to do anything. He knows that there's really nothing we can do, that Europe, which could do something, isn't going to because it's scared. Right, he's and, calling uh, everyone's bluff, and yeah. he's right, actually. Yeah, he's absolutely and right. It, you know, once it happened, it had this feeling of inevitability about it to me of, oh, well, right, he just realized there was a way to change this on. geographical equation, and he's completely right. And this will feel like Georgia soon enough, probably. Well, this is really depressing, Julia, so I think we should, <laughs> we should talk about marijuana instead. <laughs> Julia Yaffe. Well, you have to be careful what state you, you know, enter into. Is pot legal in, uh, in Russia? No, no, no. It's a very much a zero-tolerance country and with very kind of draconian punishments. Really? Like even, yeah. so do people smoke it subterraneanly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's mostly hash because of Afghanistan. Ah. All right. Two topics in one. <laughs> Julia Yaffe from the New Republic, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by a new sponsor, NatureBox. NatureBox is a subscription service dedicated to smarter stat- snacking. Each month, you can discover new, nutritious, tasty treats like banana bread, granola, and honey crunch crisps delivered right to your door. It offers snacks you can feel good about. The products are made from wholesome ingredients and are nutritionist approved. They abide by strict quality standards. There's no high fructose corn syrup, no partially hydrogenated oils, no trans fats, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial flavors, and no artificial colors. Members have the option of receiving a monthly snack surprise with the Nature Box's favorite picks or choosing their own picks. And there is a snack guarantee. If you don't like it, they replace it. You can get Nature Box in three sizes at three different price points. A deluxe snacker, five bags for $19.95, a happy snacker, which is 10 bags for $29.95, and a smart snacker, that's the Emily, Emily Bazelon one, that's 20 bags for $49.95. Each bag has three to five servings. When you decide to sign up for NatureBox, make sure you get 50% off your first order by visiting naturebox.com slash gabfest. That's naturebox.com slash gabfest. I feel like the happy snacker is somehow associated with our next topic. You are so dead on, baby. <laughs> okay. The D.C. Council overwhelmingly passed a bill that would decriminalize marijuana in this city. It will become law. Has some fans in this room. Come on, someone should boo just to Who, shake yeah, How many boo? of you are stoned right boo? now? <laughs> um, so that assumes that Congress doesn't overturn it. D.C. already has legal medical marijuana. Colorado and Washington's full legalization have taken effect. Colorado is reporting vastly more tax revenue than the state anticipated. And the decriminalization movement is also racing forward. Oregon and Alaska are pushing legalization. Florida Florida has, has a medical pot initiative on the ballot. And the Obama administration is pretty clearly turning a blind eye to this. We did quite seriously consider having one of us get high before the show. And our producer, and Andy Bowers, guess, was horrified. See if you could guess which one of us. As were my children horrified. They were so Let me be unhappy. clear. We didn't do that. Please pass the Doritos, Emily. The, <laughs> Emily... Did Emily, I did Emily volunteer? I did. Emily volunteered. I did volunteer because yes. we always have a drink before the show. It seemed to me that the whole idea is that it's not that different. But in, instead, we put vodka in here in, in honor of the Russians. Exactly. <laughs> so um, that's not true. So Emily, DC is moving towards decriminalization, which is not legalization. Uh, Colorado and Washington have legalization. Is there a what's the major distinction between decriminalization and legalization, and is it important? Uh, 
well, I think this is a quasi in between state on the path to legalization. The benefit of decriminalization is that you stop throwing people in prison for long periods of time for behavior that we are gradually moving towards seeing as okay. And we know that enforcement of marijuana laws in particular disproportionately affects black people and poor people. So there's a benefit to not having that discriminatory impact on them. On the other hand, you don't have, you can't buy it in store. You don't have the whole regulatory framework that we're getting in Colorado and Washington, which is so fun to watch unfold. And you don't get all the tax revenue because you haven't legalized the sales. So you're essentially turning a blind eye to distribution and product, yeah, production, distribution, um, rather than trying to incorporate it into right. the state. Seems like the worst of both worlds. Kind of. I mean, it is good that you're not sending people into right. prison. Like, that's, that's a, that's, I would say that's the main benefit of legalization, and so decriminalization offers that. It just doesn't have any of the goodies for the state and, and any of the protections and but benefits. the goodies of- from the state is, so, so when you, if you think about things that are, you know, sins that have been legalized, you think about gambling or alcohol, um, you end up, States end up hugely addicted to that tax revenue. So, so once you legalize it, you're kind of like you got it, and you you got to smoke it. I mean, you're you are really you're really there with it. That's so true. Colorado is going to have this situation where they're going to what are they 134 million dollars in tax revenue? They are not going to give that money up more than right, they and expected, been, and that entices other states to jump on board. And DC is just going to be picking up fine revenue as it starts fining people 25 dollars for getting high in public, right? Because you're still not supposed to do that. They were, wasn't it almost twice what they expected in Colorado? Didn't they expect 70 and they got 135? I mean, that's a lot of... I mean, yeah, you, uh, it would have been fun to be the accountant trying to figure that out, you know, and doing the budgeting. Well, it, what's that? Well, I wonder if they lowballed it because it doesn't... I mean, the sales have been very brisk, but they haven't opened a huge number more stores and dispensaries than were planned. So right. I, I think don't really they must understand have, they, they why the numbers And also, off. there is this weird thing, and you, Emily, you were talking about this a little bit, because the banking system refuses to recognize these pot businesses, because now uh, places that pot dispensaries that that are um, that are renting, that the people that hold their lease are not going to be able to get uh, their Corporate their loans. mortgages renewed, and they're not going to be able to get loans. It's it's a very problematic in terms of its integration to the economy. And it seems like that's that's going to be bad if you're going to have to like exist only handing out huge wads of cash. But the, the banks won't recognize because of the federal laws. Right, because the property that you use as collateral could be seized under federal law, and so it still has all these trappings of being an illegal enterprise. And this is the problem of the crack between federal law and state law that's emerged. And even with the Obama administration promising, essentially, to turn a blind eye as long as Colorado doesn't totally screw up, right? That's basically the bargain. The banks want more than that. They want some greater reassurance. And so now the Obama, the Justice Department is, is saying some comforting things to the banks. But, you know, the banks are, have high standards here for good reason. And so this whole question of how you really commercialize this enterprise is like the next problem to solve. David, what did you make of the governor of California, who, you, who used to be called Governor Moonbeam because of his um, kind of out there... Uh, beliefs when he was elected to his first season. Because he used to be a hipster oh many years ago. But now he said, well, I'm not sure about this because I don't want a bunch of potheads. Right, he he said, right, he was on one of the Sunday shows, right? And he he was was on Meet the Press and he was asked about taking legalization, full legalization to California and he kind of demurred and said he wanted to watch what happened in Colorado and Washington but then made this comment about how it's a, you know, it's 
in this economy, in this global economy, you've got to be on 24 hours a day, and you can't have a bunch of potheads who are running the show. Running the show, but yeah. I, I, f- I found that. It, I mean, I am I'm like the I've never smoked pot. I am like the least interested in this of anybody in the whole universe. But that seemed like a pretty feeble argument. I don't I don't think um, I don't think th- I think that people who work at Twitter and Google probably they blaze occasionally. And, <laughs> I don't think it's it's the, it's the global the economy is being ruined. And and if you look at if you want to talk about damage that's done to people, I mean, alcohol is clearly clearly more detrimental to right, people when they to use it a lot. Advocate, we always, I mean, the president said this too. He said that pot marijuana is safer than alcohol, and by many measures, he's right. But we, I feel like whenever we talk about it this way, it's a trade-off. It's as if. Fewer people will drink because now they'll be able to smoke pot. And I'm drawn to that. It's a nice idea. But what if it's not true? What if this just means that lots of people are going to smoke pot and then the people who are drinking are going to keep drinking? Right. Right. And the dirty secret of of marijuana legalization is that if you look at the numbers, the only way it works is if more people use it. So what do you mean by that? You mean the the tax revenue The tax revenue, the projections that depend on creating new markets for it. As gambling, if you look at gambling, like the, the gambling, once, you know, if one or, when one or two states have legalized gambling, they do really well because they concentrate the market. But then when everybody has it, as it's increasing the case, you basically have to get more and more people participating to continue harvesting the tax revenues that you expect. And that, right. that so, will I mean, kind of become true with Jerry pot. Brown is not my favorite. Um, I mean, wouldn't, if you were the governor of another state, isn't the sensible thing to do to wait and watch and see how right. it works out? I mean, isn't this like the great advantage of federalism and the whole idea of the states as a laboratory of democracy that you could have a dramatic radical shift in a couple of places and everyone else gets to sort of peer into the window and see how it goes and wave to the campers that are driving out of Colorado across the border. And California essentially has legalization, right? I mean, it's... Well, I mean, it does to the extent that it's pretty... Everyone has a prescription. But, right, although there's a cost to the idea that having, that the way you get access to a drug is by having this nudge-nudge, wink-wink regime, You right? mean a social cost, because you're basically saying yeah, this is a big phony... Yeah, it's all built on a lie. Yeah. And now I have to say, we were talking about this at the cocktail hour with some fans beforehand, so I'm stealing their actual lines, and they are here, so I have to give them credit for that. See, so... I feel like a fraud. The... The... <laughs> the um, if you, if you legalize, are you, in fact, opening the door to harder drugs? That has always been the argument. It but does not no feel to me like that that's that happening. That. Right. No. It doesn't feel, no, I don't mean, I don't mean do you, is, is marijuana a gateway drug? I mean, oh. is legalization of pot a gateway to legalization of meth? And coke. Oh. I, I see no energy behind why that is it, why, is it, why is there no national organization for the reform of cocaine laws? Um, well, I think the argument, you can't argue that cocaine is essentially harmless. And it, cocaine also doesn't have a kind of, I was, I'm going to say it, yeah, functional subculture behind it that allows for political organizing. Yeah, right? but you know what? The banks would get right behind it. Yeah, I am. <laughs> methamphetamine really doesn't have a constituency <laughs> behind it and people are like, yo, my teeth are rotten please. <laughs> the dentists are all for methamphetamine. But I was looking at um, the governor's statement. He said, this is actually what he said. He said, the world's pretty dangerous, very competitive. I think we need to stay alert. If not 24, hour day, if not 24 hours a day, more than some of the potheads might be able to put together. First so that's all, a pro-coke. That's, that's pro-speed, pro yeah. He also sounds incredibly paranoid, which... 
Well, there's, this, there's these stats about, so one of the theories of marijuana legalization, which turns out to be bogus, is that, oh, it's going to break the power of the Mexican cartels. But it turns out that, that I saw some studies of this, and it, it, only 17% of cartel revenue is marijuana. So it's it most, could give it's, them a little dent, right? It gives them a little dent, but it doesn't. It, it seems to be really quite a little dent, and, right. and it's and it does. And it and first of all, they haven't. There's no sign in Colorado and Washington yet that they've destroyed the black market for marijuana. Right. right? Well, so there's still the illegal in market. In all fairness, that will take some time because the prices are higher in the dispensaries, much higher right now than they are on the street, and there are a lot of people who are suspicious of this whole idea of a state takeover of their nice quiet, underground habit. So the whole kind of social construct of pot has to change in order for the black market to go away. John, do you think, we have this administration, of Stoner Obama, where, where they're like, yeah, everyone get high whenever you want, we're not going to do anything about it. But you elect, you elect a God-fearing, right-thinking Republican in 2016, and you could have a president whose views on, on drug laws are different. Do you think there's any chance that you end up with a Justice Department that stops turning a blind eye to it? Or once this, once, once this has been permitted, basically, the, you know, the federal drug laws, as, as they relate to marijuana, are, are done? I don't, I, I, I don't... Well, like a couple of things. I think uh, the first fastest piece of evidence is I spent the, the morning at the um, Conservative Political Action Conference... And, you know, when you hear speech after speech from uh, Republicans um, pitching right to conservatives, you kind of hear the, the, what the are some of the... The useful pillars. Well, the, the, yeah, some of the hot buttons and what's being talked about. And so you, you can see what's kind of the, the hot topics. Drug legalization, like, not mentioned once. Interesting. So school choice mentioned a lot. So anyway, you, you get a sense of what, and what's applauded and so forth. So anyway, just that little um, anecdote suggests that uh, it's not going to be a big issue. Also, what's fascinating is the tax piece of it. I mean, if you're... Well, so two things. One, uh, it's a tax, which people don't like, but it's a sin tax, so... Which people do And it brings like. in a lot of revenue, um, and so... But then you It disproportionately affects Democrats, I think. <laughs> right, right. And, right, and depresses turnout, so... Um, <laughs> No, the youth turnout is up. I know. It was, it was a cheap joke. Oh, Let me sorry. have my cheap joke. Um... Uh, I had another... Oh, also, if it's a federalism issue, right. you, could, you could avoid it on those grounds, too, which is let 50 laboratories of democracy, as long as they're not meth laboratories of democracy. <laughs> um, um, which was... I can't remember which federalist paper was the meth lab of democracy. <laughs> I think it's in the Apocrypha. Um, Anyway, uh, I don't think that that's the territory that they'll spend a lot of time in if they're not even if 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 you're not even hearing it being used for sort of fake applause. Also, lines. isn't the presidential calculus that it sort of sucks to be Obama, the person who has to actively turn the blind eye and deal like it's a headache for? The, but once one president has done that, right. then it's everyone else can just go along right. with that easily and ignore but, it. Unless do you worry that, that I mean, the, I was looking at the federal drug laws today. You know, possession of any amount yes, of marijuana quite, is a one year. You're eligible for one year in prison. They're quite clear, and you can get the death penalty for dealing marijuana. That's, the death penalty. It's pretty crazy. So you know what the Department of Justice has said is they are still going to crack down if there is evidence that a lot of pot is leaving Colorado or Washington, if kids are using it, and if people are using it driving. So they're basically trying to kind of keep the brakes on, and those are all things that presumably the state officials are interested in preventing, too. Um, what about the kids? So, you know, we started out joking about 
how I mention this to my kids, but whoops, sorry, that was my <laughs> cough drop. I'm desperately trying not to have a fit of coughing in the middle of this, but now I've spit out my cough drop, which is arguably worse. Um, <laughs> well, so, um, so, but are we worried about the message this is sending to kids about the acceptability of drugs, or will this just turn into like having a glass of wine at dinner or something we expect children to be able to assimilate without being uh, ruined? I think they will be able to assimilate it. To me, actually, the weird mixed message is that there's such um, opprobrium from parents about cigarette smoking, right? And then, and then we're, we're going to be like, oh, like, oh, but it, having a having a a joint is okay. But kids, I mean, I don't. Right, very it's hard still for a kids to distinguish it. Yeah. yeah and so how that how that message is going to get passed on, I'm unsure. Do you guys think that in in 20 years we're fully marijuana is fully legal? basically throughout the country? Or is this just going to stutter step around? Huh. I wonder if we could end up with some kind of red state, blue state divide about this. I, I think 20 years, no. I mean, I think Well, Colorado is the great example because Colorado is kind of <coughs> purple. purple so. I mean, Alaska has a drug right, legalization. Right. Alaska is on the move, right? Right, but Florida is another purple in the middle state. No, I would say I, unless something goes wrong, if something we have, an, if there are a lot of deaths on the road, if there's a real... You know, if for good reason there's evidence that this turns out to be a bad experiment, then no. But if it seems like a good to neutral experiment that brings in tax revenue, then yes, everyone in 20 years. And in 20 years, I won't be here to be called on my predictions, so it'll be, I'll be fine. You we're think totally going to do a show in 20 years. No. Okay. Okay. Um, we're sponsored by Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. Leasing a postage meter is expensive, and there are multi-year commitments and hidden fees. But there's a better way, which is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter, and you'll avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. Right now, if you use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The test mocked for its obscure, opaque, abstruse, murky vocabulary demands, slammed for its idiotic essay, which rewards nonsense over facts, Feared for its overwhelming importance to the college admissions process and gamed by the rich is getting a huge makeover. The college board announced yesterday there's going to be a major reform of the SAT. They're going to make the essay. They're going to make the essay optional. They're going to reduce the obscure vocabulary words. They're going to limit the number of mathematical topics and demand more depth than each of those topics they do test you on. They took away the penalty for guessing, which is great. I'm glad they did that. They're also going to provide free tutoring, access to free tutoring for all kids, and to give fee waivers for college applications for kids taking the SAT, allowing them to apply to four colleges for free. Low-income kids. Low-income kids. And they're also uh, cutting the score back to 1,600, which is good. Good, because we'll all understand We can all understand the scores again. So, um, Emily, this seems like just 
all around a great idea. Is it all around a great idea? It's all around a great idea. Um, there's a great, there's a New York Times Magazine piece that went up today by a writer named Todd Balf that was very well-timed and gives all kind of background and context. And one of my favorite parts of it was a sports metaphor for the aspirations of Daniel Coleman. David Coleman. David Coleman, the head of the college board, who comes across in this article as being quite visionary, I have to say. Um, And the sports metaphor is that taking the SAT, going to take the test, should be like a game, like a hockey game or a soccer game, where you've practiced for it, you know the rules, and what happens when you get there on game day is what you expect. doesn't mean that you win or that the performance goes perfectly, but everything is according to the rules of the game all the way along. And what and the, so the the idea is that until now the test hasn't functioned that way because even though you could certainly prepare for it, you could memorize obscure vocabulary words, it was all basically about a set of tricks that you learned that fell outside of real learning in school. Right? Test prep was like this separate thing that happened over here in which you memorized things and figured out how to game the test in ways that were very useful to scoring higher on the SAT, but did not translate into life. And so this is going to be a much more seamless version, which reminded me a lot of the advanced placement tests. And my question, and I think the answer will be yes, is whether you can have a test that's more democratic than the AP that functions in this way that it's connected to real learning. And I I just don't see why they couldn't figure it out. And once they're doing it, it seems insane that it, you know, since 1926, we've had a a version of the test that accomplished none of those goals. I still would, but knowing how to say a program or knowing what it means is still good. I like the way you laced a program into the last uh, so then a program yeah. is a good word because yeah. we still use it. doesn't mean they don't have any vocabulary. <laughs> right. We just get rid it's of the very silly easy word. Well, no, but here, isn't this really also about marketing too? Because colleges are, are dropping using the SAT as a measure. Uh, and so yes. they've got to find it. And that's the 1600. There may be a great um, policy reason for doing this. But it seems to me one marketing benefit is that everybody from our generation and those previous understand what the score is now. And it reconnects us with a thing that has become foreign both in its application but also foreign in the numbers you get. Um, So isn't this all about marketing? Well, that's one way to think about it. But, I mean, I think what's so important about the schools that are dropping the SAT and the ACT, there was a study recently showing that those schools have just as high college GPAs and graduation rates among their students, which suggests that this this is an artifact, that these tests don't provide extra useful, valuable information in the admissions process. So I would, David Coleman, who, David Coleman actually is my wife Hannah's high school debating partner. They were national champions. They were terrifying. If, if they, I can't even imagine. David is incredibly smart. Hannah is just fierce, so they, I'm not surprised. It's a good thing we didn't but, have to debate that we would have lost. I think it's slightly cynical to say this is a marketing plan, especially when you think about the outreach that's being done to poor kids. I mean, to me, Isn't the, the, the most... proof? Well, why is that proof? What do you I'm mean that's proof? Actually, You're just like... So, so no, never got it. I mean, the, the, <laughs> one of the great details about ki- poor kids when they take the SAT, poor high-achieving kids, is they often then don't apply to any selective colleges. They will take the SAT, but applications are expensive, they're hard, complicated, it's hard to do. So, so you have these kids who, who would get in to excellent colleges if they bother to apply, but they don't know to apply, even though they've gone to the trouble of taking the SAT. And so what this fee waiver and these four free applications 
apparently is going to do, and there's, I think there's studies that show they are remarkably effective at getting kids who wouldn't have applied to apply to colleges that will welcome them and want them and give them opportunities. And, and I think there, there's strong evidence that it's going to really push a cohort of kids into colleges, which is right. great. Right. Although, to, to push on John's marketing point, that it's, it's all in the service of giving the test itself back its monopoly, right? The more virtuous and good you make the test, the more you cement its place. I mean, the other option is to get rid of the test entirely. And so the test, so the, the real question is, is a reconceived test better than no test at well, all? Amanda, Not is it better than Amanda the old Ripley, version. Amanda Ripley has this wonderful book, Smartest Kids in the World, which many of you have probably read or certainly know about. And one of her points is that almost every high-achieving school um, country? country you look at has a end of high school test which has very high stakes. Which is like the AP, Which though, is more like it. But level, so they're making this more like the AP, making it more like a high stakes and making it less like quirky, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, here's a bad analogy. Right, then, but it's but is does Amanda's book then show that it's that those tests are really useful and important, and that kids benefit from having them there? I mean, you're making them sound like very virtue, you know, like the medical exams or something that we. I don't. I know think if the thing, really the with. point that she makes is that kids feel the high stakes. They work for them. They work hard for it, and. And Have you ever that's taken? Valuable. Do you do you feel like that was true about, for example, your exams in college that you really learned a lot studying for them? I'm I'm seriously asking the question. I'm trying to remember. Exams over papers, or I mean, yeah, studying exams, in general. Tests. Exams, I'm trying to tests. think about tests I have taken that I was really glad to have taken that test. Like I would never say this about the bar exam, for example, ever. <laughs> no. It's funny. I am an amazing test taker. If I do say so myself, it's one of my great. Great. I'm not shocked. Uh, it's one of You're my great skills. You're also very humble. I'm extremely humble and an amazing test taker. But I cannot, for the life of me, point to anything. I mean, I think what tests teach you and what the SAT, I think what the SAT test is how do you perform quick actions under pressure, basically. That's what it tests. It doesn't test anything else. So, and yet, I don't your know. college exams, which you studied for and maybe retained some knowledge from, no, maybe so. no, you don't think so. Same, no. just as useless. If it's just I think they're just as useless. I think tests are pretty useless but overall. You are so good but at remembering things. You don't think that's partly yeah. because you had to get them into your head? I don't know. If it's quick action under pressure, think about how much more fun it could be, though. You, you could have like live Build fire it. exercises or paintball. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be better? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. I mean, do you guys? Think, well, do you guys, do you think that there should do you think that that there should be no test that you? No, no, there should be. Tests. No, I don't Why? think there should be no. Because I think there are tests in life, right? And so when? part of what you're when doing, is there a test? Deadline. Deadline is about performing under pressure. It's, there are right, lots not, of deadlines. Yes, yeah, just performing under pressure, but it's not a test. It's not like you you, you well, someone grades your story and it's it like that's a C. It kind of is actually. I mean, if you're if, not that you get a grade at yelp. the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Traffic chart beat. Someone grades us in some way. I no. I think there is an. I think writing a paper, while I generally think it's more useful exercise, is more rarefied, much harder, right? But also, it you can do it over time. It doesn't test performance on the spot. And there are some jobs in which I mean, you don't want the performance on the spot to be something that's totally irrelevant, which is what the current version of the SAT. I would argue is, but if it was knowledge that was based on something you had learned and that you might value from being able to keep, then sure. So the, also the question with the SAT is whether there is a racial component to the taking of the test, period. Whether, and there have been the studies that have shown when you come, when uh, 
that there's something about the process of taking the test. So all of the financial breaks you get for taking the test kind of obscure that still problem with the test, which is that African-Americans score lower, that there's, an, there's a, that great study about the performance uh, anxiety, essentially, that overcomes perfectly... Well, you're talking like, about stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, right? the stereotypes that, that, that are attached to the test, that you can't break away from the test. And that still hasn't been fixed. I don't know. I wonder if there's a different stereotype that attaches to AP versus to the SAT. Um, I mean, I would think it could be similar because what it really is is about being in a situation where you're told that race mat- or could if, that race has a disparate has an impact on scores. And right. then once you know internalize that, then you go. I mean, it happens with women too. Women also have. Uh, lower scores because of stereotype threat. I don't think it's specific to the no. SAT, although maybe because it's aptitude, people feel particularly out of control of the results. So, so there is an absolute 100% correlation between income and scoring, like the higher your income, the higher your score. Yes. And obviously, most people of a certain income bracket get <laughs> test prep. In fact, I would be interested. So on, by, in, a, in a voice, um, with a voice activation... We're going to do those of you who've gotten test prep and those of you who did so not get test prep. If you took the SAT, so did you, when you were preparing for the SAT, um, get test preparation, or did you not get test preparation? If you didn't take the SAT at all, just be well, quiet. What does test preparation mean in this conversation? Like, does pay, it mean, paid, like paid, 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 paid any, any, money. paid, paid okay. money for it. So, did you get paid test preparation? Did you not get paid test preparation? Wow. So I have a follow-up. So the people who are in the no group, did you do things like buy one copy of Princeton Review or the Kaplan practice, or did you just go and call? How do you did clap you for buy yeah. one copy I'm of Princeton Review? I'm not good at these dual questions. Yes, right. did, did, you, did you practice if you just bought the book, do child's pose. And, <laughs> and if you made flashcards, do downward dog. Get the whole damn room forget doing it. yoga. Forget it, forget it. We won't find out one more thing. But do you guys think it's unfair that rich people pay tutors and get take classes and buy books? Or... Yes, it's wildly unfair. And th- that's why this new partnership yeah. with this Khan Academy, which is going to be this online tutoring and um, learning, could help with things. But you're never going to eliminate the unfairness based on wealth because Khan Academy is not going to come to your house for $200 an hour the way some of my friends from college do when they are paid um, SAT tutors. I hated the SATs. Really? really? Do you hated taking it, studying it for it, the whole thing? Just the whole thing. I mean, I think it was a useful... Because I think you, you, know, you have to face tests in life and... So that, but it was, I hated it. God, I hate it. I think I took it twice because I think the <coughs> did first Did you feel time that was, way? Of, did you take any AP exams? I took the, yeah, I took the, well, the APs were different, were different because you, fe- I felt like, they were to connected. your point, yeah, because I spent the whole year studying history and English and so I felt like, ah, okay, this is my, you know. Um, is it one of these things where the test itself actually doesn't matter, but the, te- the only purpose of the test is to concentrate you so that you learn it? Right, so that actually the test is the merely test. a hoop that it's it's a barrier, right? I mean, I felt this strongly when I so the LSAT is just the second version of the SAT. Your your LSAT and SAT scores perfectly correlate along with your family income. You might as well not even bother to have to do it again. 
And, but the only difference I noticed was that it was about moving incredibly quickly. I decided that that was how the, 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 the difference between the top scorers and the next is simply about whether you can really, really rush. Whereas I don't remember feeling super rushed in the SAT. And it just, it's merely a hoop. It's just there so that there's an easy way to get rid of a lot of applicants. I guess I meant more like an AP test, an AP biology test. You go through a class in AP biology, and let's say you have no AP test at the end of it. Do you just simply not learn the material because you, don't, you know that you're never going to be forced to be tested on it? So the purpose of a test is essentially to compel you to have done the work beforehand. I think that's right. And a good test makes you um, regurgitate it in a way where actually just the process, you're synthesizing and analyzing it as that's- you're also just proving that you remember it. As opposed to simply regurgitating it. I think so. All right, let's move on to cocktail chatter when you're doing test prep with your Bazelon children. Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? Oh, I don't think I'm going to chatter about this with my children, but but with you, I will. So I'm um, going to be ruining a man named Michael Robinson who... Robertson, I'm sorry, all the Michael Robinsons out there, I've slandered you. Michael Robertson, who got arrested on Boston transportation for taking photos up the skirts of women. Um, essentially what happened was that people reported that he was doing this, literally putting his cell phone camera up people, women's skirts, and then the Boston police deployed an undercover female officer to be the lucky next recipient of, um, of these kinds of photos. And so Robertson was arrested and charged with violating the statute in Massachusetts that makes it illegal to take pictures of someone nude or partially nude without their consent. And he, the charges were just dismissed against him this week. The reason the judge gave, they basically was, sorry, it was the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And they were kind of apologetic and sorry, but they said, look, this statute just doesn't reach this behavior. Women don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy of people taking pictures up their skirts on public transportation. <laughs> Which, I know it sounds kind of crazy when I say it, but, you know, they are in a public place, I guess. The part I don't understand is partially nude. How is that not, like, your underwear? I don't get what, other, what else partially nude means if it doesn't cover... Up wait, your, so wait, who can't be par- partially nude? The, the well, bus drivers. <laughs> <laughs> the women who are being photographed, right? But so the crime is, not, is the taking crime is the to partially do it of partial nude. nudity. So I'm a little confused about why the court was so sure that the language in the statute didn't cover this kind of photography. But right. because the judges seem to want to arrive at a different answer... I essentially trust them that this is a matter of being judges being restrained in their interpretation of the words of a law. You're not supposed to go wildly charging beyond the statute. And, you know, the, the next step is for the legislature in Massachusetts to revive the law, which indeed the Speaker of the House um, talked about doing today. Do you think this is true in every state? I don't know enough about these statutes, but I would imagine that most states haven't anticipated yet in their laws, upskirting the great new phenomenon. But this is not like a super rare problem. There's a whole subreddit devoted to upskirting. So clearly it's like a real thing that happens. But I mean, there's a subreddit pretty much devoted to everything. But it's like an active subreddit. I went on it today. There are like lots of photos. (laughs) I'm sorry. This also was not discussed at CPAC. Anyway, um, the subredditors were pleased, obviously, about this ruling. It just does not seem <laughs> like right, the right I mean, outcome. It's, a sub, it's for it's for 
Upskirters. Yeah, it's like go upskirters, unite. You're you're free from criminal charges. If you're Michael Robertson, aren't you just? Why are you not a pariah? Well, maybe you are, and that's somewhat of a punishment. But what you're not is in prison, which mm. could have otherwise happened. So I guess it was should worth it, it to him. Do you think him. he should be in prison? Well, he should be something. He should be fined. He should be right. I mean, it's not. Come on, you don't want some. You don't want. Oh, she's going to bring in the heavy yeah. Sorry. Sorry. You almost went to the kid, didn't you? I just don't, I do not want this to be legal. This feels invasive to me and and wrong. No, it is. And super creepy. Yeah. 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 I guess. I guess that's right. No, it's right. It's true. Were you you briefly an upskirter there for a minute? Did you you have a moment? I don't think that would be No, it's not true. I know. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Another cheap joke. You can chatter. Go ahead. All right. So, uh, since we've been talking about the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union, so we've been talking about Russia and the Soviet Union and the way it feels like the Cold War is back, it turns out that on this very day in 1967, Joseph Stalin's only daughter defected to the United States. Uh, her first name was Svetlana. Her last name, I'm going to butcher, um, Alleluia. Just like Stalin did. Yes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Actually, Stalin was... A lot of Stalin fans Stalin here. Yeah. That was a Stalin yeah. butchery joke. Come on. Yeah. One death is a tragedy. Right, off to the gulag for you, comrade. Um, but he was a visionary with the Adobe Photoshop, Stalin. Um, anyway, so, uh, where was I? Svetlana. Okay, so, Svetlana, um, on this day in 1967, is in India because her first husband lives in India. And she goes to the American embassy and basically says, I want asylum. I want to defect to the United States. And this is at the, you know, right, 1967 in the middle of the Cold War. And Chester Bowles, this is, is the ambassador now, Chester Bowles, later in the Kennedy administration, uh, was undersecretary of state, I think was his position. And he was famously or... Um, uh, he was against the Bay of Pigs and leaked that and then ended up getting punished by Kennedy. The punishment was to be sent back to India to be the um, ambassador for, I believe, the rest of his life. Anyway, Bowles is presented with Svetlana and she says, either decide now or I'm going to go say America doesn't want, you know, doesn't believe in democracy. So basically he wires Washington, gets no guidance back and basically says, okay, come on in. Like, what, big deal. She comes to the States, renounces Uncle Joe, um, and uh, who Khrushchev in his diaries wrote once dragged her by her hair in a drunken rage onto a dance floor. Mm, no wonder um, she was eager to so get away. So she was not a fan of her father's, although there, that, may, that incident may not have happened because Khrushchev was you know, not always telling the truth. So it gets weirder. So she lives in the States for a while. And then, and this is really the part that's not uh, something that you would have expected. So Frank Lloyd Wright's widow, Olgivana Lloyd Wright, um, in 1970, writes Svetlana a note and invites her to come out because Olgivyana Lloyd Wright had a daughter named Svetlana who had died in a car crash. And she thought that this Svetlana would be a replacement for her Svetlana. This That's is, so weird. Yeah. This is um, Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect. You may names we know. So Svetlana goes out to visit... Previous to her death, Svetlana Lloyd Wright had been married to one of Frank Lloyd Wright's apprentices, William Wesley Peters, who then, Svetlana, the only daughter of Joseph Stalin, marries. Okay. So, 
they marry, they have a child, then they end up getting divorced, and, uh, and she goes on to live both in uh, Britain and in Wisconsin. Um, so, anyway, so I have that's... a general observation to make. So, first of all, I thought you said you didn't have a chatter, and then you came up with that, which is pretty awesome. But second of all, you've totally shifted. No longer do we hear about polls. Now we hear these, like, incredibly weird, intricate, historical nuggets that, like, who ever knew about? And they go on forever, but they're so interesting and charming. I can barely follow them, and yet I'm mesmerized the whole time. All I heard from that is they go on forever. <laughs> no, no, no. That was just my mean little cheap joke. I air Yes, I'm catching, I'm contagious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, no, I'm trying to, you know, uh, raise my game like David's done with the credits. Right. And- so my chatter uh, is about a, the Supreme. I'm, I, if, if John is changing, getting off his game, I'm moving into your game. It's about you a Supreme Court it. case. The Supreme Court on Monday oh, yeah. decided to take a case involving a guy named Gregory Holt, who's a prisoner. Uh, he's in prison in Arkansas, and he's a Muslim, and he wants to grow a beard, which I sympathize with. And he uh, he wants to grow a beard. He says for religious reasons, and the state of Arkansas says he cannot. They say you must be clean shaven. And so he is, he's sued and said, there's no legitimate reason for you to stop me from growing my beard. I have a religious reason to do it. And um, the Supreme Court has agreed to take this case. It seems like he's going to win. It feels like he's going to win. There, almost every state allows Only a half-inch beard. beard, too. He agreed to that. That's what the case yeah. is about. So it's not about a big beard that you could actually imagine yeah, sticking so the something whole point, into. Yeah, it's like a security. They say it's a security right, threat. Like even shorter than yours, yeah, I don't maybe. think I can... Like, has there ever been an incident... Has there ever been an incident in which people have hidden, you know, like drill bits in their beard or something? Has there ever been an incident? Yes. I will go with you. I have no idea. Sure. If you had a really long beard, if you were Dumbledore, you could hide a whole... But I thought that was your chance to say, oh, sure, in McKilligutty v. Smith. sorry. (laughs) Well, no, but what... So I started to do some research and actually found it... It's not a beard example, but I was thinking, like, well, what do prisons ban? And they, you know, prisons ban all kinds of stuff. There's the prison in South Carolina that tried... This is a good one. (laughs) They tried to ban every book except the Bible. That was... That didn't work. Um... There's a prison in California that banned all kinds of touching of visitors because there's too much contraband being passed back and forth. And then the one I like is, which is, which actually kind of reveals why Arkansas is so paranoid, is there's a prison system in Utah no longer allows kids to send crayon drawings to their parents in prison or marker drawings. And why do they do that? Because the markers. they're using... People are melting drugs into the wax of crayons... Uh. And then you, you but know, how you just, much? Oh well, it probably happened once. I know. And so now that's been, like now Richard everyone can't the get a crayon bomber and taking your shoes off. Yeah, all the now time. it's totally yes, it's totally stupid. It's yeah. totally stupid. But I'm I'm glad this guy's gonna. I'm sure he'll may he prevail his, his uh, beard. Now we're gonna do the credits. You're just gonna have to endure it. There's a vigorous debate on our Facebook page about whether the credits I've been doing are an abomination or are great. And it's <laughs> we're not about taking 50, a voice vote about that right now. And you're just going to have to sit through this and suck it. <laughs> Mike, cut that part out of the show. Yeah, please. It's a... Okay. Hey, baby. Is it hot in here? Or is it just you? I'm new in town. Could you uh, give me directions to your apartment? Why don't I come over to your place and... We can check out our show page, slate.com slash gabfest, and I can show you some links to what we talked about today. 
excuse me, just one second. I've got to email gabfestatslate.com and tell them I've just met an angel. <laughs> Didn't I see you on the cover of Vogue? Or maybe it was just over at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. I left a comment while I was there. You want to know what I wrote? Yes. You know what I wrote, baby? I wrote, You're not supposed to inhabit the body of this person to whom he's talking. <laughs> he looked you did a little, you know, yeah. encouragement. Your dad must be a terrorist, because you're the bomb. <laughs> I shouldn't have answered. My skin just left the room. Walk just crawled right off me. <laughs> Were you arrested earlier, baby? Because it should be illegal to look that good. If you weren't arrested, maybe you should head over to the iTunes store and search for Slate Political Gab Fest and leave a rating while you're there. I searched for you in the iTunes store, baby. I left a rating, too. You know what it was? Perfect 10. <laughs> Let me show you the latest tweet from our Twitter feed, at Slate Gabfest. The tweet is, that dress looks great. It would look even better on the floor of my bedroom. <laughs> Have you met our producer, Mike Volo? We call him Kobe Bryant, because he's always scoring. Our intern, this is our intern, Rebecca Cohen. I sure hope Rebecca knows CPR, because you took my breath away. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, which means he usually gets all the finest ladies, but he's going to have to come through me to get to you. For my wingman, John Dickerson. For my wingwoman, Emily Bazelon. I'm David Plotz. And baby, you need to stop, drop, and roll, because you're on fire. Uh, we're we're going to do a Q&A. For anyone who has questions, there are two mics up here. We can't do every question, but we'll, we'll do as many as we can. Um, be, uh, we're going to be fast. We're going to make our answers <laughs> rapid. And Julia, if there's, a, if there's a Ukraine question, Julia will come up and answer it for us. Um, so I just got back from Ukraine, uh, where I was for three years in Donetsk uh, with the Peace Corps. And uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Julia, about... Um, just what's happened in the last day or two there, because um, a lot has been happening, uh, and about uh, people occupying the administration building and reoccupying and getting kicked out again, and um, then maybe also just real quick about the authorities in Kiev and their ability to bring the country together with all of what's happening in the eastern part of the country and the rest of the country as well. So uh, what's been happening in Donetsk is uh, the Russians have been bussing in a lot of protesters from across the border from Russia who pretend to be residents of Donetsk who uh, feel oppressed by the authorities in Kiev. And actually, um, a great reporter named Andrew Roth at the New York Times found the guy who raised the Russian flag over the, gov- the government, uh, the city administration building in Donetsk. It turns out he's a, he's a Kremlin youth group activist. He's done this before. He actually recently raised the Soviet flag over the building of the last independent TV channel in Moscow named Dorsh. So they've, you know, they have their shock troops who do very specific things like raise flags over buildings. You need your flag raiser. <laughs> yeah. What I, what, what I thought was really interesting in Danetsk, and I wrote about this this week, was that uh, it was very much, again, it was calm. And the divide between Russian speak, people who identified as Russian and people who identified as Ukrainian was not ethnic and was not linguistic, but it was generational. 
So the people who were born after 1991, who were born in an independent Ukraine, identified as Ukrainian, regardless of their ethnicity or their uh, language preference. Their parents and grandparents' generation, however, generally identified as Russian and were more like, according to research that was done by a political science professor there, were more likely to identify as Russian. And that is because, I mean, people like Vladimir Putin, for example, he doesn't think that Ukraine is a real country. He said as much to George W. Bush in 2008. And he's not alone in that generation. Uh, There's a whole... uh, There's tons of people out there who don't believe that this is... um, this is a real country, and so they're like, you know, come on, guys, like, can we just take this back? Can we just stop kidding ourselves? I mean, I had an example like this in my own life recently. My, uh, my, you know, I'm from the Soviet Union. My parents are from the Soviet Union, but they hated the Soviet Union, which is why I'm here and not there. So uh, one time I went to Georgia for a vacation. Georgia used to be part of the Soviet Union, now is an independent country. I got a Georgian cell phone. My Jewish mother was freaking out because she said she couldn't reach me. Turns out she was dialing the Russian country code rather than the Georgian country code. So this is like ingrained. really deep, deeply ingrained in that generation of people that this is, uh, this is kind of theirs. And I think this is what we're seeing playing out, that the young people on the streets in Kiev and Donetsk, um, they, don't, they don't share this feeling. And I think that's what, it, this is kind of part of the long post-Soviet tr- transition. Um, okay. We're going to do, we'll do every question that's up here, but we're going to do them really fast. Okay. So turning back to domestic politics, um, when President Obama had his interview with David Remnick, part of what he talked about was how he was kind of embarrassed by this push that he had when he was first uh, running for president in 2008 about bringing a new kind of politics to Washington. And I wanted to ask you, it's obviously a mixture, but how much of that do you think is a reflection of either his own hubris in thinking that he could do that, the opposition that he's faced um, pretty much since the start of his presidency from Republicans, or the sort of unrealistic expectations that Americans vested in him um, in 2008? And, you know, just how do you think that that reflects on how Americans choose their presidents and the expectations that we vest in them to do these things that they say they're going to do, but plainly, you know, can't happen in reality. It's my favorite topic. Um, I think it's. I think the answer is yes to all of those things. The fourth probably uh, ingredient in that stew is his um, where his talent comes into play. So was he less talented than he thought? People thought uh, at changing the political system here. I think that figuring out the mix of of what affected the Obama presidency. Uh, is what we'll spend the rest of our lives doing, which is to say, clearly there was a partisanship in this in the city that didn't just arrive on his first day, and so he should have. Uh, one of two things was happening in the campaign: either he, um, David, okay, so uh, either either he was you. either he was naive or he was hiding the fact that the town was more po- uh, polarized than he thought. We we don't know. It's kind of a mix. Um, and then, of course, the, the the opposition to him was, I think, surprisingly, uh, did surprise him and his people. So it was, and it was stronger than than they thought. So I don't think it's any one of those things. I think it's a combination. And and you know, I've tried a lot to figure out what the percentages of are of that, and and probably will keep doing it. Really, let's be really quick. Okay. Um, <laughs> hi. I love when you guys bring in a guest. 
and it shakes things up. So I would ask you, if you had to pick, who would you pick to be the Ringo for the Gab 4? Oh, that's... The Ringo? A, the Ringo? The Ringo. Like, if we had a regular fourth, who would, who would our fourth choose? be? But by Ringo, do you mean filling the fourth slot? Or are, do, are you making a... Do you have a pejorative views about Ringo as some people do? <laughs> I mean, if you extended it, it's who's John, who's George. You know, you could fi- fight it out that way. I don't know if I have a particular person in mind, but having someone on the stage who knows about foreign policy is so wonderful. It's true. <laughs> Disagree, it makes us look bad. So, um, we all look like Ringo with Julia here. Do you have an... Uh, who would you want? We've never thought about it. God. Hmm. We'll, we'll get back Steve to you. Steve yeah. I guess, maybe. Okay, he's going to try to bring the last two topics together, although not with marijuana. Um, there's an argument that can be made that the SAT could serve as a sorting mechanism that determines the difference between a B-plus at Phillips Exeter Academy from a B-plus at you know, Mississippi Day School. Colleges may or may not use it that way, but it gives a comparison across the 50 laboratories of educational democracy um, that we're now seeing a big movement toward. All the states and localities want to determine their own educational policy, even though we have national colleges that recruit nationally. That's one factor of a lot of federalism that's, that's being pushed, that, that more things need to get pushed down to localities. Obviously, it works for le- the attempts to legalize marijuana. Um, it's not working so well for education. Where do we draw the line for what should get pushed down to the states or lower? Well, education's uh-huh. going kind of in the other direction. The Common Core is much more like we're, <coughs> we're going to have a national curriculum, which I think is probably Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited about the Common Core for those reasons. Um, you know, the traditional spheres for the states are domestic law, criminal law, and education. I would say those are probably the big three. And I, the states are doing. I mean, you don't. I don't think in order to feel that it's the proper domain for the states, you have to feel like super warm and fuzzy about every choice they make. Um, it's also about what a federal government takeover would mean and um, how much local control is a good thing, reassuring to people makes the decisions feel closer to them. All right. uh, David, uh, first of all, your socks are great. Um, Thank you. What socks? My, socks. They're, they're amazing. Um, so my question is about the push-pull that Russia seems to be having between wanting international legitimacy by joining the G8, the G20, and then what they do afterwards. So the obvious example here is hosting the Olympics in Sochi and then immediately having this invasion of Crimea. Is this, is this just an extreme reaction? What is, what's the logic here? Why aren't they on their best behavior for the next two to three months at least? I think that's uh, kind of the million-dollar question, uh, and that's what makes them so hard to predict. As for why this... I think it was an accident that it happened right after the Olympics. The, uh, the shooting in Kiev started during the Olympics, but I think what Putin did afterwards, pretty sure... I mean, I'm going to psychoanalyze him again for the nth time this week, but I'm pretty sure there was some adrenaline coming off of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. You know, the world was rooting for him to fail... Uh, for you know the ski jump to collapse and for Russia to come in last in the medals count or like 11th like they did in Vancouver and none of those things happened and things went great and Russia won the medal count and uh, yeah and you know if, victory, won, if they'd victory. won hockey so, he would have invaded Mongolia <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so I, I think you know um, yeah but then 
an opportunity presented itself with some political instability in Kiev, and he just went in and grabbed what he wanted. But may, I think may, uh, maybe the Olympics played a role in that, that, that they kind of give his ego a boost. Hi, I just wanted you guys to further extrapolate about this idea of a, perhaps a red-blue state divide with regards to marijuana decriminalization and legalization, because I don't know if you know what recently happened in the state, state of Georgia, or our Georgia, not Russia's Georgia, but uh, in the Republican-controlled state house, they just passed a medical marijuana uh, law allowing for uh, very specific use. And in my mind, it seems like this might be an indicator that the Republican Party might see this as a possible way to uh, prevent the further hemorrhaging of votes, and I just wanted to know what you guys might have to comment on the recent developments. And mind you, this is a legislature that considered a Arizona-style anti-gay bill, too. So they're kind of schizophrenic when it comes to these kind of things. Um, you know, another aspect of this is that there are states that are spending just, they're just hemorrhaging money on the criminal justice system. And so part of the push for sentencing reform is very much a pragmatic effort to pull back. And marijuana decriminalization is an obvious place for cost savings. And, I mean, if you have Rand Paul, who's, you know, possible president, who is, I mean, he, he's probably smoking right now. <laughs> Quite possible. The libertarian portion yes. of the Republican Party, that's a part of that, too. Hey, um, I have a very serious question, and that is, if you could hang out with any president, living or dead, um, not your favorite president, just a president you want to spend a day with, who would that be? Oh, Lincoln. 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 Yeah. That's easy. Yeah. <laughs> you need a second. Who would be the second choice? Roosevelt. I would pick Grant. Oh, because you, right, you love Grant. I would pick FDR. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. None of you, I was going to say, none of you think that Teddy would be a great time. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Good question. Also, Stalin. Je- Jefferson. Which one? Stalin. Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so the Republicans in the past have been pretty good about putting, like, issues on the ballot as sort of, like, referendums that will pull out their base, um, like anti-abortion laws. Um, have you seen the Democrats doing any of that? Um, you know, I guess, like, the marijuana decriminalization or legalization laws could be an example, but something that will bring out their base in the off years? And what do you think the prospects are of that? Well, there's the same-sex debate going on in Ohio right now, but they that's actually... You know, same fraud. sex it's marriage. Not clear. It's not clear. Right. It's not clear among. Well, d- minimum d- wage is this? Minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. Minimum wage. Minimum wage is probably much better, actually, because minimum wage is an issue, even if it's not on the ballot. What the pollsters in these races will tell you is, so the challenge for Democrats versus Republicans in an off-year election is that Republican voters tend to vote more in off-year elections than Democrats do. So how do you? You have two challenges: a) how do you turn out your existing voters, but b) how do you find new voters? <coughs> And so the minimum wage, they believe, is a way to get new, either sporadic or just voters who don't vote at all, who believe in democratic ideas, and that the, 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 the minimum wage grabs them in a way that actually gets them to turn out. So that's distinct from somebody who's voted for Democrats a bunch of times but just gets too lazy on election day. This is somebody who's doing it for the first time because of the minimum wage. Hi. So I have a domestic question about Ukraine, which is, especially in a second term, the Senate Democrats have been largely separate from the president on his foreign policy from Syria to Israel to Ukraine. Why do you think the Senate Democrats are sort of willing to break with the president around foreign policy? What does it tell us about the president's power, about how Democrats think about foreign policy? Does it have any impact in 2016? But it's been really strange to me to see, you know, Senate Democrats almost going to bring a veto on 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 an Iran sanctions bill and now speaking publicly about they're not happy with the president's response on Ukraine when he really can't do that much, which really just sort of strikes me as really strange that Senate Democrats are criticizing our president for foreign policy. Well, I said a quick answer is there's no 
there's no penalty to being on the other side of the president. I mean, his numbers are, you know, his numbers aren't great. Um, and particularly on these foreign policy matters on Syria, you know, he, the president didn't look so great. Um, on Iran, that you get into Israel, the Israel question. Um, but they, in the end, they stepped back. I mean, they, they didn't push it. And that, he has Harry Reid to thank for that. I don't know what the politics of Ukraine are. Do you have any guesses? Well, I, I was just surprised at how quickly they passed the aid to Ukraine bill today, all of a sudden we don't have a national debt problem and everybody was happy to dole out gazillions of dollars to uh, this country. Are they Public- ever going to pay it back? They are totally not good no, for it, are they? No, I'm kidding. It's no, just they're just like, it's going to be like more mansions. Yeah. Well, Ferraris. Maybe a little bit. Helicopters. Maybe some mini McMansions. Uh, so I'm an environmentalist and a GabFest fan, um, and so would always love for you guys to tackle climate change and, and the environmental issues more. Um, and I get we solved that it already. <laughs> <laughs> I get that there's no political traction, so it can be tough sometimes, but you see nuggets of change in that all the time. This morning, House of Representatives voted again to limit EPA authority, but they lost three Republicans for the first time ever. This 20 senators are going to take to the Senate floor all night on Monday to talk about climate. So I want to ask you guys, when do you think climate will get enough political traction for it to be a regular topic on the GabFest? Ooh. When, be a regular when topic eat, like, on the GabFest. Suddenly we're oh, a for, marker. For a regular topic or just talk about it at all? <laughs> I, I think there was one episode where maybe a friend of Emily's like a year ago you guys took on climate. Yeah. So well, I was, was going to give you that. When the EPA finally announces its regulations on existing power plants, I bet we'll bring it up then. So June will hold you to it. Right. I mean, the problem with climate change is it's so long-term, right? And maybe in some ways are... There will be clarifying moments. Yeah. (laughs) When we do a Gabfest knee-deep in water, you mean? (laughs) All right. Uh, Last year, let's... Uh, Just just wondering, uh, first, uh, in terms of what was your initial reaction to the Daryl Issa Elijah Cummings duel yesterday in Congress? How do you react to that? Do you think that has any long-term implications in terms of the whole partisan rhetoric? And then secondly, I'm a history teacher at a local high school, and I'm a big GabFest fan. I was wondering... As trying to get kids to do current events is like pulling teeth. How? What would you recommend besides well, obviously GabFest, which I recommend? How do you get kids to want to be like to besides doing their homework, actually read and get into what's happening in their current day lives and why that's relevant to them for the long term future? You know, it's a great question. I, I think you can combine those two. I mean, when they look at Daryl Issa and Elijah Cummings having their spat. On the one hand, they think, oh, we look at, you know, I recognize that from, you know, mixed martial arts behavior, and they think it's a show, and that's entertaining. Unfortunately, it's so depressing that that, that, that probably doesn't work. Um, gosh, in current events, because history, of course, is so much fun, because you have Frank Lloyd Wright's widow trying to get, you know, a replacement for her daughter. Um, Double defectors. Huh. It's tricky. I try and do it every day. It ain't easy. Um... Well, does it have to be straight-up politics? I mean, I think if you can... Sometimes it's the back door, the side window, right? So my children were really into sports. They could tell you a lot. And they've learned things about current events by reading a lot about sports. I think also the states. I mean, there are all kinds of fascinating and interesting things happening in states and with governors. And It's just that it's not the big casino. And so it's kind of like, okay, let's talk about what's happening in Iowa, where there was almost a fistfight on the floor about constituent service. Like... That's why are people so, I mean, because why are people about to, like, come to blows of the question of constituent service? Like, what's at the heart of that? And you could unpack that 
Um, but it's Iowa, so are they going to? No, be? it's like I don't know. Obama, I mean, I love Obama, Iowa. I'm just Obama, saying. Obama, totally clear. Obama was a clarifying moment. There are all yes. these high school kids that are involved. They're you know, in 20 years, those kids are all going to be in Congress. Right, but that's not a sustaining day to day thing. I don't well, think it can be sustaining day to day. It's just I mean, like fun, I, and when fun <laughs> moments pop up, and and local news take that is your city, I yeah. think also pulls kids in. Uh, first of all. I'm here from Idaho, so a fan of, of uh, the, the Gab Fest. Um, and then my question was also about ISA. And my, and my question is, what kind of, will there be any ramifications of his behavior? Do you think there will be any, anything happens because of it? No, not, not at, I don't think at all. I mean, he might dial it back a little, you know, in his next public event. I don't know. But Boehner was supposed to maybe respond to it today because I know the Congressional Black Caucus brought it up on the floor, they were escalating. I mean, what this is, I think, uh, an example of is what's one possible side result of the fact that the budget fights that we've had for the last five years, which were a mess, are largely gone now because the budget's basically been put on autopilot for the next couple of years. And so we might have some fights on appropriations, but they may also decide to just fund them at last year's level and just not deal with it. So in election year, there's going to be like a search for fake fights. And there's going to be a lot of this. There are going to be hearings held that are going to be, you know, highly, highly political. And then there are going to be efforts to, I'm not saying that these are without, you know, some of this behavior is without merit. I'm just saying that a lot of it's going to fill a void that isn't being filled by the huge budget fights that we've been used to having over the last five years. I actually, I don't know. I think it's the reason that people don't care about it and aren't interested in it is that the House has essentially... uh, has um, atavistically driven itself out of relevance to the world. Like, people don't... It's a ridiculous institution. It doesn't do anything. People know it doesn't do anything. It won't, it's not going to do anything. So why is any... No one cares about it. They could, they could have... They could, like, do... You want to do mixed martial arts? They could do mixed martial arts on the floor of the house every day, and people still wouldn't care. Well, it wouldn't do, matter. People do care about this question who are... Partisans on both sides yeah, they but, care a lot about it, but not outside of that. Hi, I was also a, a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine, and we worked with a lot of programs. I know we got two You're of us. You're all here. <laughs> Did you guys our, know each other? Yes. Our, our efforts to reach out to the Peace Corps volunteers in Ukraine are paying off. <laughs> um, no, but when I was there, I worked in a lot of or worked with a couple of programs to uh, promote respect of human rights and civil liberties. Um, which seemed to be, I mean, admittedly, anecdotally, they seemed to be effective and kids were picking it up. But on the flip side, you've got stuff like the Victoria Newland tape where they're high-level um, government officials sort of trying to pick Ukraine's next prime minister behind the scenes. And it seems like that harms our efforts to openly educate other countries or influence other countries openly. And do you think that's part of the political calculus or the calculus that people make when they're designing these foreign policies? And what are your opinions on this? Do you think it's worth the trade-off in trying to covertly influence versus what we can openly do through public programs. Well, uh, about the Victoria Newland leaks and a leak and then the Catherine Ashton, uh, the leaked conversation between Catherine Ashton and the Estonian foreign minister the other day, let's talk about what, what the hell the Russians are doing. That they're just, you know, the day after Vladimir Putin makes a, a point about a crazy conspiracy theory that the anti-Yanukovych opposition hired snipers to shoot their own guys in order to stage a provocation, drive Yanukovych from power. These guys, uh, Ashton and the Estonian foreign minister were discussing this, and then the 
uh, the Russians leaked it the day after Putin's press conference. I think that's, I mean, they, they've been playing dirty a lot in this conflict, and that was just uh, one of the examples. What I was struck by in uh, Kiev... But why can't they play dirty? I mean, we play dirty. What's wrong? We don't I mean, play that, seemed... that dirty. We don't play that dirty. We don't I'm... send in troops without insignia, and then are like, well, I don't know, who are those guys? <laughs> that is so were... weird. No, I don't know. You were talking about, like, the guy, the guy who raises the flag with some, was a Kremlin plant. I mean, if you think about the invasion of Iraq, all the people who are, you know, pulling down the statues of, of Saddam were American plants. plants. Those are American plants. I mean, so it's, I don't, I'm, I'm not it's at theater. all equating what Putin is doing <laughs> with the United States, but I'm, I, I said dirty. they're playing dirty on this one. Jim, just... <laughs> Circumscribing. Um, the, the thing that I was struck by in Kiev was uh, how little this was influenced by the outside world and how much this was no longer a fight, especially by the end, this was no longer a fight about whether we want to be in Russia's orbit or in Europe's orbit. This was about Yanukovych and how much money he'd stolen and what a terrible president he was and how his son was going around the country just taking people's businesses away uh, because he wanted to and about what kind of country they wanted to live in. I think the Russians had more influence and left more of a footprint there, but the Americans were, I mean, I think the Victorian Newland uh, tape made that very clear was that we were very much playing catch up there and kind of trying to figure out what was going on, how we could get a handle on it. And I think, again, uh, we should probably realize the limited extent to which we can have an impact in these kind of big countries. Last question. Uh, yes, I think it's fitting to end on a marijuana question, so I just wanted to ask. Oh, I thought you were going to be another Ukraine <laughs> Peace Corps. <laughs> no, not one of those. Um, just here in the District of Columbia, uh, assuming that the decriminalization passes, uh, you'd have this jurisdictional divide. You were talking about the crack before, um, and you'd have uh, you know criminal penalty, stiff penalty federally, and a civil penalty uh, for the District of Columbia. Do you see any issues, jurisdictional issues, with that? Well, you guys are in order to have the DC pot initiative pass. Congress is going to have to wave it through tacitly. So. I would think that before that would happen, the, administ- the, Obama- the Department of Justice would make some indication of how they're planning to handle this. And given that decriminalization is a less bold move than the legalization they've tolerated in Colorado and Washington, it would seem like they should go for it. Um, on the other hand, there might be some particular sensitivity about the nation's capital that could play out differently. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.